0: Welcome to Mom and Mind, where we dive into all aspects of perinatal mental health and wellness related to conception, pregnancy, birth, loss, postpartum, and new parenthood. We raise the volume on these topics in hopes that someday everyone will have the support and information that they deserve before they need it. Please note this podcast is not a replacement for treatment by a professional or professional training. Welcome back to Mom in Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. We continue on in Maternal Mental Health Awareness Month, hoping to reach more and more moms, partners, families, and providers in really deepening the understanding of perinatal mental health changes. You guys, we can do this. I know we can. We have to be getting the word out. We have to be sharing this information. We absolutely have to be checking on new moms and new dads and new parents to see how they're really doing. We can get to a point where everyone knows that mental health changes during this time are a real thing and that it's not something to feel bad about. We just really have to rally around this. Today, we are hearing from another mom, Kate Rope, who is sharing her experience and who has turned her experience into a book and resource for other moms and families. Kate is an award winning freelance journalist whose work has appeared in many publications and online outlets, including The New York Times, Time, Real Simple, CNN.com, Shape, Glamour UK, Baby Center, Parade, and Parenting. She is the author of the forthcoming Strong as a Mother, How to Stay Healthy, Happy, and most importantly, Sane, From Pregnancy to Parenting. She's the co-author of the Complete Guide to Medications During Pregnancy and Breastfeeding and lives in Atlanta with her husband and two daughters. So let's meet Kate. Welcome, Kate. Thanks so much for being with us.
1: Thanks so much for having me on.
0: I'm so glad you're coming on to talk about your book, Strong as a Mother. And I'm excited to hear about this because I think it's so important that we're hearing real stories from real women because it helps others so much. And you wrote a book about it so that really everyone can just have this in their hands and be able to take their own time going through and seeing what went on for you and seeing how it can be helpful for them. So start off with telling us a little bit about yourself and your experience.
1: Sure. So I'm a journalist and I've been a journalist for 20 years now. I was mostly focusing on health when I got pregnant with my first daughter. And becoming a mom is pretty much the only thing I always knew I wanted to be. I had a brother who was born when I was 10 So I kind of had a taste of that kind of caregiving. You know, it was less of a peer relationship and more of a caregiving one. And I just always knew I wanted to be a mom. I always knew I wanted to have at least two kids. And I just went into it Mm -hmm. with complete enthusiasm. And just four days into being pregnant, I mean, four days past conception, pre when a pregnancy test would show anything, I had a pain around my heart, this mysterious pain around my heart that felt sort of like heartburn. And I had had something similar to it a year prior. So I knew as it started to get worse that it wasn't heartburn and maybe I should get it checked out. And so I went to an ER in New York City. We were living in Brooklyn at the time. And they were immediately concerned that it was a blood clot. So they wanted to do CT scans and some other things that you're not supposed Uh to do if you're pregnant. And I had been charting, so I knew exactly when I would have conceived if I had conceived that round. And so I told them that, and they said, Well, we've taken the pregnancy test, and it doesn't show anything, and and we need to make sure you're not dying, basically. So you have to have this test. So I got a CT scan, and I was fine. And they sent me home with really no treatment plan at all. And two days later, I had a positive pregnancy test. So that was sort of the start to my pregnancy, was feeling that I had done this thing you were not supposed to do in pregnancy and had I, you know, irradiated Mm. my fetus or my embryo. And so basically, that continued over the course of my pregnancy. I would have this heart pain on and off, and they didn't know what it was. And I would go in and out of the ER, and they would always do these scary tests on me because they were worried it was a blood clot. And I developed a close relationship with a radiation exposure really? expert uh. in pregnancy, and he, I would email him after every test, and he would be very reassuring because, you know, these risks, though they our okay. risks are remote and it's really more about accumulation. And they weren't radiating where the baby was because they were looking at my chest and that kind of thing. But I even at one point had a nuclear radio tide wow. shot into my veins and I had to be, I was like behind a metal door with a oh nuclear fallout shelter sign on it. That's so intense. You know, where they did some kind of, yeah, some kind of special test. So that went on for the first five really? months of my pregnancy. Otherwise, my pregnancy was fine. But there was just this baseline of what's going on, what is this thing, and are the things that they're doing to find out what it is safe for the baby. At five months, I ended up going to the hospital, and finally they did an ultrasound of my heart, which is completely Mm non-threatening to a growing fetus, Mm -hmm. and also much cheaper (laughs) than all the other crazy tests they did to me. And it turned out I had fluid around my heart. I had something called pericarditis, which is when the sac around your heart gets inflamed. And if it is inflamed long enough, fluid can collect there. And it's extremely painful because every time your heart beats, it's like beating into this inflamed sac but it's not actually dangerous. It's not in very rare cases. If it goes on for, you know, many years, Mm -hmm. it can be dangerous to your heart, but it's otherwise benign. The treatment is ibuprofen. I mean, they gave me two ibuprofen and two hours later, I felt like a new person, but it is also associated with autoimmune conditions such as lupus. So then I sort of went started going into a whole new round of tests for autoimmune conditions where they would test me for those about every six weeks. And then eventually I had to go on steroids when the ibuprofen would no longer control the inflammation. And so I was on a low dose of steroids. And then that made me very nervous because, you know, there are birth defects associated with steroids. They usually are from when you take them in the first trimester, they can increase your risk for baby with a cleft palate. Toward the end of pregnancy, they can contribute to growth restriction in a fetus. So I had to have extra scans to make sure she was measuring normally.
0: I assume that from the beginning, you were in a high risk category? Because of the pain you were experiencing or what happened with that?
1: Well, I mean, they did send me to a high risk doctor, but not necessarily because there was anything going on that was a threat to my pregnancy, but more because they realized I needed somebody who was a calm and reassuring (laughs) presence because I was getting very nervous. And he was, I had this amazing obstetrician and he would always say things to me like, you know, if we were choosing a medication, he'd say, we're in oh. the shallow end of the pool. We can get a lot deeper before we need to worry. You know, he had, he was from Mississippi and he had these lovely ways <laughs> of putting things. So, yeah, there was a lot of anxiety going on during my pregnancy. And at a certain point, I got a therapist. I had been in therapy at different times in my life and it's always been a great tool for me. And so I found this therapist and she was wonderful and she helped me with the anxiety that was kind of building around the pregnancy. And then, After my daughter was born, I sort of took a little bit of a hiatus of meeting with her. And there were some things that happened early on after my daughter was born that were kind of signs that I was not as sort of stable in my mind as I, you know, as I wanted to be. I remember.
0: This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I wanna tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Uliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd wanna know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP? was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains.
1: a few days after she was born, you know, making my husband repeatedly promise me he would never leave me to raise a child alone and some moments like that. But and then I eventually did start going back to her. And initially, I wanted to write a book about what it's like to have a difficult pregnancy because I felt like during that time, I would read all the pregnancy books and they would say things like, well, you can look at an aspirin, but don't take one if you have a headache." And here I was taking steroids. And I just felt kind of like a freak in the regular books. And I thought, I know that complications are common. And I want to write a book that, you know, for all women, so that they, they could find something yeah. of themselves in the book and not feel like they were doomed to, you know, be an outlier. So that was my initial thought. And then my anxiety started to pick up. And started to become difficult to sleep at night. And all my anxieties would revolve around my daughter's health Mm -hmm. and my health. Mm -hmm. And I would have intrusive thoughts, sort of repetitive intrusive thoughts about if she was sick, you know, that her immune system wasn't working Mm because I had taken steroids. And so this illness was going to become something really bad for her. She had a bug bite on her hand and I was, you know, convinced it was cancer. I was convinced that I had some life-threatening condition and I was still going to see. And actually, I started seeking out experts in autoimmune disease and going to see them and they didn't have any answers for me because I didn't show any symptoms of any of those conditions beyond this you know, idiopathic pericarditis I would get every once in a while. But at one point even, I was in a dermatologist's office and I had what turned out to be ringworm And I don't, I think I got that maybe in Jamaica, I'm not sure, but I was so convinced that it was a lupus rash that I made this dermatology resident biopsy my arm and it was ringworm. And to this day, I have this little Mm -hmm. divot missing from my arm that I feel like is this constant reminder of, you know, how anxious I was at that time.
0: Can I ask if during that you had any sense that you were anxious Do you you know what I'm asking? Like, you're looking back on it now, and you know now that that was anxiety. But during it, did you realize you were feeling anxious? Yes. And I was
1: back in therapy, and we were talking about it. So I knew I was having anxiety. Mm -hmm. What took longer for me to realize was how bad it was. I was sort of like, you know, there's that environmental analogy about the frog who if you put a frog in a pot of boiling water he'll jump right. out but if you put him in a pot of cold water and slowly turn up the temperature he won't realize mm-hmm. it and he'll you know boil i felt it was kind of like that where the es- i didn't notice the escalation but i was starting to not be able to sleep well some mornings before going to work i was working at a time ink at the time at health.com and before i would go to work in the morning i would throw up mm-hmm. um just from the nerves And I just felt like there was a constant dialogue in my head that I couldn't escape. Mm -hmm. And finally, my husband was working at the New York Times at the time, and he did a travel piece in Jamaica. And we were staying in this amazing hotel. And our daughter face-planted off. She was on the bed for a second. She was nine months old. And she rolled over and and face-planted on the concrete. And... You know, we talked to a local doctor who said, here's, you know, signs of concussion, but she seems fine and everything, but I just couldn't take it. I just kind of snapped at that point and I was just bawling and screaming at my husband that I wanted out and he was looking very scared and and I was saying, you know, I don't want out of my family and I don't want out of life, but I want out of my brain. Like I can't live in my brain anymore. It's too exhausting. It's too scary. And so at that point, when we went back from that trip, I saw my therapist again, and we both agreed. And we had sort of been talking about the possibility of me seeing a psychiatrist for medication. But at that point, we both said, yep, that's definitely what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. So I saw a reproductive psychiatrist, and she definitely agreed, you know, and, and she thought, this seems like a time limited thing, you know, but probably Zoloft, Sertraline could really help you. And she slowly tapered me onto that. And within two weeks, I was, I mean, I was a different person. It was night and day. And all these people, I don't feel that I was necessarily particularly well supported by friends during that time period. Or maybe they just didn't understand the extent to which I was kind of devolving inside myself. Mm -hmm. But they would say, oh, the old Kate's back, you know, like it was visible to everybody, the change.
0: Did they mention what they saw that was different? Were you like more yourself? Were you? Did you have more energy? What was it?
1: They didn't say, but I was able to be present. I think you know. Before that, I was like a deer in the headlights. Like my brain was so busy calculating risk that I couldn't even sit there and engage in a conversation with you about okay. the weather or whatever was happening because my brain was too busy. I think that was why.
0: Yeah. I mean, that makes sense for the high level of anxiety, sort of like, kind of somewhere else or preoccupied about the worry. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The way I put it was that Zoloft was sort of like a snooze button for my brain. Mm -hmm. And I was able to rest. And then I was able to, in my therapy sessions, work on my anxiety because I had clarity because I wasn't so clouded by the irrational worries that I could actually sit there and be rational and think them through and talk about, you know, what reality is. Right.
3: And absolutely.
1: I had had, I think, my whole life, I've had low level anxiety. So I felt almost better than before once I was treating That's that. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. With the medication. Yeah.
0: Wow. Okay. So this is within a couple of weeks, you started feeling better. Yeah. So at what point postpartum were you at this when you started taking the medication? How far after birth? Nine months. Okay. So it sounds like you had a buildup over time. Mm-hmm. And then it got really intense. I think that's super important for people to hear because I think a lot of misconceptions are that it's, you know, if you're going to have anxiety or depression, it's happening in the first month after birth. And like, I think like you're describing a lot of people are just trying to hold on for a long time. And if it keeps getting worse, then it gets to a point well after birth that they might finally be seeing or getting to a point where it's so intense that it's hard to function.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting because almost all the experts, you know, the therapists and psychiatrists that I interviewed for my book said that the six to nine month period, it was really common for them to see women at that point. But then also for the women to say, I've been feeling this way since two weeks after birth. And I can relate to that for sure. You know, that something wasn't right, but I didn't really realize how not right, it was, Mm -hmm. it took me a long time. And, and I was even seeing a therapist, you know, and maybe that contributed, because maybe I felt like I was sort of keeping it under control a little bit, you know, I was addressing it. But just at a certain point, that wasn't enough. At a certain point, I needed, you know, the neurochemistry in my brain to be altered. Mm
0: -hmm. All right. And two, you're just kind of trying to get through the day and hold on. And it sounds like you were had been back to work for a little while, too. Mm-hmm. At that point. Yep. Right. So I think a lot of people can identify with that, that you're just trying to get through the day and you're still functioning, you're still doing, you know, what you're supposed to do. It just gets harder and harder to do that as yeah. time goes on. Uh, so also I think it's really important that to note that even though you were getting help and support that your symptoms, and that's not true for everybody, but your symptoms continued and worsened, I think there's kind of a misconception that too that you get one kind of support and that's going to fix everything. And sometimes people need a couple of different types of support in order to get better back to themselves.
1: Yeah, definitely. And sometimes, you know, even with medication, the first one that someone tries I mean, I think it's really great if you can get to a reproductive psychiatrist or someone who really has experience prescribing. in the postpartum or during pregnancy or during breastfeeding, that's the best. But even still, it's possible the first medication you try. I mean, for me, it worked. But I've also known people who tried a medication and that wasn't the right fit. But the next one was. Mm -hmm. Right. Also, all the experts I spoke with said, you know, I'm in this field because there's just such great recovery that these are conditions where they things can go badly very quickly, but they can also get better very quickly. And there really are effective treatments. So, you know, I mean, definitely for me, when I was two weeks in, and I was like, Oh, my God, I mean, and I had had a friend who had talked to me about it, you know, so it'd been on my radar for a couple months. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, why did I wait? This is amazing. Why did I wait, you know, and I, a lot of women, I wrote, an article was the first piece I wrote about this. It was back in 2008 or 2009. It was the last issue of Cookie Magazine. And I wrote an article about postpartum anxiety and that before anybody was really talking about it. And the women that all the women that I spoke to just said like, you know, oh my gosh, it was so much better so quickly, you know, and I suffered for so long unnecessarily.
0: Right. And um, part of it is like you already described, it's hard to know. You have that kind of a slow boil effect. And then also people don't want to feel bad. So they, in their Mm -hmm. mind, are trying to tell themselves that they're better maybe sometimes than they are. But also there's a lot of stigma around perinatal mental health in general, but then Mm -hmm. doubly around medication. So Mm -hmm. I appreciate that you're talking about it um, because for some people, it literally is life-saving to take a medication.
1: Yeah. I mean, I have a psychiatrist now who I love because he's so medical. <laughs> he's sounds weird, but he's just really a doctor. It's not, he, he, you know, he, he doesn't really do therapy. And, you know, he said to me, because when I moved to Atlanta, I had sort of what I call my third bout of postpartum anxiety. I had, I had weaned off my medication and the move really shook me. And we were talking about it. And he said, you know, if you had low thyroid, we would treat you with a dose of synthetic thyroid for the rest of your life, you know. And he said, "You have low serotonin, right? And it's possible, you know. And th- these drugs have low side effects. It's possible you may be on it for the rest of your life. But if not, at least go on it for a little while while you weather this move, you know." Mm-hmm. But he and I kind of dragged my feet, and you know, here I am writing about this stuff, and I'm three episodes in. You think that I would, you know, be on board? But I'm dragging my feet and sort of beating myself up over it. And he said. Would you beat yourself up if you got the flu? Would you be treating yourself this way over the flu? And I said, well, no. And he said, well, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, your mental health is a part of your physical health.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is. And the more that people like you are talking about this and the more that people can listen to you, to what you're saying and hear that message, the more likely they are to reach out and get the help that they need. I think those of us who have been through this all struggle or had struggled in the beginning with overcoming this whole idea that, oh gosh, there's something wrong with me, or I, what? I need medication, and or some version of that that keeps us really stuck in not getting better more quickly. Mm-hmm. But really, I love that you're open about it, and you're talking about it, like, you're just, as you're saying, it's just another type of condition, just like diabetes or whatever, that just needs support, and sometimes the support of medication.
1: Yes. And it is twice as common as gestational diabetes. Right. And women are screened regularly at screened and treated for diabetes. And it's like, Oh, yeah, I got my ugh, I got my glucose screening today. Yuck. You know, <laughs> it's like, a normal thing you talk about, you know, like, why can't it be? Oh, you know, I had my perinatal mood and anxiety disorder screening today at the doctor and you know, he thought you know maybe there's some stuff there that might be worth talking to somebody about or you know yeah. or seems like things are going well whatever but it's you know twice as common it's gestational diabetes mm-hmm. it's a medical complication it's a common medical complication of pregnancy and delivery it really is. and if we were to treat it like that in the medical system that would make it that much easier to talk about
0: absolutely and you know getting the word out like you're doing is so important. Because it's not talked about, I mean, frankly, doctors, general medicine, general practitioner doctors aren't really getting this training and most doctors aren't getting training in perinatal mental health. So the more that I think we talk about it and get the word out there and get information into moms and families' hands, then they can go back to their doctor with like, hey, I saw this Strong as a Mother book. Have you seen this? This is what this is. It's not just me. And you know, hopefully someday everyone will be trained. But until then, you know, you speaking out is part of making that change.
1: And actually, that brings up the fact that I was dismissed by my primary care provider, I saw him about a month or a little bit more after birth. And I told him how anxious I was feeling. And he said, Well, when did you stop taking steroids? And I told him and he said, Okay, well, give me another three weeks. if you're dying in three weeks, we'll talk again or something. And you know, in three weeks, I was off and running. So That was a real missed opportunity for him and for for me. For sure,
0: for sure. Wow. Yeah.
1: So one of the things I say in the book is, if you do not feel right, keep talking until you talk to somebody who will help you.
0: Awesome.
1: If the first person you talk to, whoever they are, isn't receptive, then go to the next person and keep talking until you get someone who listens and will.
0: That's such important advice. It really, really is because a lot of moms get dismissed or feel shamed. Mm-hmm. On some level, or are given these really anecdotal ideas about what it's going to take to feel better. You know, oh, well, you just need to do X, Y, or Z more, and then you'll feel better, which is also dismissive. But it's hard to keep that up. Once somebody pushes you down, so to speak, it's really hard to get back up and try that again. But it's absolutely necessary.
1: Yeah. I mean, especially if you've got taken all the guts you had to say the sentence in the first place, and then it yeah. gets.
0: Yeah. No kidding.
1: But that was, I mean, the main goal of my book is to normalize. This is a huge transition. It's like, it's a beautiful, amazing life transition. And to think that that would be easy is so silly. Of course, it's hard. You know, anything this transformative Mm -hmm. has to have some hard parts to it. Otherwise, it's not the big, beautiful, life-changing thing that we know it is. So to normalize that struggle is a part of that. Mm -hmm. challenge is a part of that. And there's no shame in speaking up. And there's a spectrum of struggle, you know, maybe it's just that you do really badly with with little sleep, and Mm -hmm. you need to figure out how to get better sleep. Maybe it's just feeling, you know, really detached identity for a little while and figuring out how you get back in touch with, you know, the person you were before you added a person to your life. (laughs) You know, or maybe it's, Inpatient psychiatric care because you're experiencing postpartum psychosis. I mean, there's a spectrum, but it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter where you fall on that spectrum. What matters is that you get the appropriate help for where you fall on that spectrum. So, absolutely. Yeah. I wanted to normalize the idea that struggle is a part of this transition and it's okay to ask for support for whatever your struggle is. Because I think if we can talk about the struggles that are maybe, you know, Seen as more commonplace or, you know, if we can start the conversation with the socially accepted struggles and then we can broaden our definition of struggle so that we get into, okay, one in five women experiences a perinatal mood or anxiety disorder. So that's 20%. So that's pretty significant. And so that's a thing that happens and there's support for that. And then, you know, there's postpartum psychosis, which is a psychiatric emergency, but it's also very treatable and it also is a biological you know, side effect of giving birth. It's not about Mm -hmm. who you are as a person or who you are as a mom. It's about what happened in your body. And there's appropriate treatment for it. So that I just wanted to say, like, struggle can be beautiful, struggle can be terrible, but it happens. Mm -hmm. And what do you need to move through that? And what can you do also to prepare yourself for things that will then minimize struggle? Like, how can you think about co-parenting Uh, How can you think about sharing sleep, you know, protecting your sleep by doing shifts, thinking about who's going to come after the baby's born and how that could be like maximizing that to be helpful to you rather than feeling like you have to host everybody, you know, thinking through how you want to feed your child and then preparing for that method so that, you know, you get over the bumps faster when they come. So I think like, sure. There's acknowledging that these are challenging times ahead and you can plan for them to make them smoother. Mm -hmm. And then when you hit a bump, there is help.
0: Yeah. And these are all things that you go over in the book, right? Yeah. It's pretty comprehensive. So- Yeah. Give us just a brief walkthrough of how the book is set up and what people can expect. So
1: it's in three sections. The first section focuses on pregnancy. The second section is sort of the immediate postpartum, post bringing a baby home, kind of getting your feet under you first year. And then the third section is just a more philosophical look at the pressures that society and we place on ourselves as mothers and how to manage them and how to figure out what matters to you and be true to that. So if someone who's newly pregnant or, you know, in pregnancy, then they would probably want to start in the beginning of the book. If you're a non-bio mom, adoptive mom, third-party reproduction, you know, and you're starting with the baby coming home, then you can start in the second section. And basically, it just goes through the things that you can do things, you know, in the case of pregnancy, you know, it talks about anxiety in pregnancy and talks about miscarriage anxiety in the first trimester and how to manage that and what that looks like if you've experienced a loss before. And it talks about body image and how to feel good about your changing body, setting boundaries Mm -hmm. with people who if you know, people sort of start to feel like they have a a stake in your growing child, and that they can touch you or say things, you know, and sort of starting to learn how to set boundaries, which is so helpful once you're a parent as well. Sleep in pregnancy, and the book really has a lot of emphasis on sleep and moving your body because those are both really proven to be mood boosters. And in the case of sleep, you know, can really be devastating if you don't get enough of it on your mental health and physical health. So I tried to, you know, really come up with actionable pieces of advice and not just kind of the usual stuff you see in magazines And preparing for feeding your child, thinking through, you know, what really matters to you. There's a lot of pressure around things like breastfeeding and, you know, figuring out if that is something you want to do, then what you can do to put in place supports that will help you start off well with breastfeeding or get over any difficulties you have. Mm-hmm. And also just talking a little bit about flexibility, because there are times when breastfeeding isn't, you know, let's say that breastfeeding was your goal. And then for whatever reason, after delivery, it's not possible. There's studies showing that that can contribute to postpartum depression, you know, the, the hope of breastfeeding and then right. complications with breastfeeding and then feeling like you're failing, you know, quote unquote, at some part of motherhood. So I do a lot to kind of unpack that and talk about why do we have these high expectations? And like, these are not about who you are as a person or who you are as a mom. This is just, you know, a choice Mm -hmm. you're going to make and then follow through on and then adapt if you need to. I do the same thing with birth, talking about preparing for birth and Mm -hmm. thinking through not just sort of having a concrete plan of this is how I want to do it, but thinking through, well, what would I want if things deviated from my plan because that's also another area that can be really hard for women if their birth didn't go the way they hoped. There tends to be a lot of personal, they put a lot of blame on themselves and can feel really disappointed and even traumatized by the experience. So thinking through some things you'd want to have in place if things don't go the way you anticipated they would go. For instance, I interviewed one woman who wanted a home birth and she had a doula and a midwife, but they had talked about what if, you know, worst case scenario, I end up in the hospital with a C-section and they said, we'll still be there. We'll still take photos. We'll still do that plan. And they did. And she said that was tremendous (laughs) for her because she felt like she got something of what she was hoping for. And
0: so there's a lot in there about prevention yes. as well, prevention and then supporting through decision making or kind of options, pointing out what the options are and then also if so such and such is going on, here's how yes. you can deal with yep. it.
1: And I think like just in general, we're so uncomfortable with the unknown and there's so much prescriptive advice around being pregnant and giving birth mm-hmm. and raising kids that when things don't go according to prescription, you feel somehow that you've failed or that something's gone wrong. And so to kind of, I don't know, pick apart what really matters here and what can you be flexible about and what messages are about what you believe in and what messages are coming from other people that you're taking on that maybe you don't
4: need to. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.
5: Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter-Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter free.
0: That's really great. And I think because this in the perinatal mental health in particular is one of those things that we don't talk about a lot or just in general, we're talking more about it, which is great. But for the most part, people aren't talking about it. But it's also one of those things that people don't want to know about. On some level, because of this idea of what motherhood is supposed to be like, well, I'm going to be fine because I'm going to have my baby or I'm going to be fine because pregnancy is you're supposed to be all like happy and lovely and, you know, feel good. And all of these really basic ideas about and fantasy on some level, fantasy ideas about what it's going to be like. It's hard to hear that there might be a problem But when you couple it with like you're doing like, hey, there might be a couple of these issues. And then also here's a way to think through it. And then also here's some options as opposed to like you're saying, telling people what to do. This is just much more easy to digest.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, and I really toiled with that. I really kind of wrestled with that in the anxiety section and talking about miscarriage you know, when you're newly pregnant, obviously, you want to be forward thinking and hopeful. And I know what it's like to have anxiety. So I certainly don't want to introduce it. But I also thought that one of the reasons miscarriage is so hard is that it's not talked about, you know, and it is possible that there's someone who reads my book, and, you know, loses that pregnancy, and they need to put my book up on their shelf till they're ready to take it down again. And I wanted them to know that that's an experience that happens. And, I'll be here when you get back, you know, (laughs) and whatever you're feeling is real. And so I think being able to talk about difficult things in a kind way makes them less scary.
0: Absolutely. That's so fantastic. Okay, so maybe walk us through to the second and third sections of the book. Sure.
1: So the second section, again, is just sort of the nitty gritty of once the baby is home, getting sleep, managing conflict with your partner, because that's going to happen. That's inevitable. So how to minimize it, how to manage it, how to not make elaborate stories in your head about it, (laughs) understand that it's a moment in time. That's right. I talk about sex and the six-week checkup and how everyone says that's the sex checkup. And I think that's a little unrealistic. I mean, for people (laughs) for whom it is, and they want to go about having all the wild sex they've been daydreaming about for six weeks, great. (laughs) <laughs> but for the rest of us, and I include myself in that category, sort of how to think about intimacy in other ways, how to talk about it, if you feel touched out, if you feel claustrophobic, if you feel like you're getting all your mm-hmm. intimacy needs met by a cuddly baby. And I actually, I interviewed Dan Savage and have some great tips on, you know, ways to be intimate without penetration, and, and then returning to work, thinking about your return to work and finding childcare and feeling comfortable with leaving your baby. And then the last section is, and I also talk about exercise and moving your body in the postpartum section. And that goes into the last section. But that's sort of where I start to transition into really thinking about what makes you whole, what are the things that you've done in your life and other time periods that really brought you back to yourself and how to slowly Fantastic. work those back in. Because I think, you know, self-care, is just gets thrown around and then it ends up just meaning like mani-pedis and cocktails with friends. And I don't, <laughs> right. not that there isn't a place for that in your life, but I don't think those are really really restorative. I think that what's really restorative is if you have a spiritual mm-hmm. practice, or you really like to read, or for me, I play the fiddle, you know, you make music, or dancing. And for me, exercise, daily exercise is key to my mental health. So, so figuring out what things okay. are non-negotiables that you can start to work back into your life to keep a sense of you and to fill your bucket, as my 6 year old's teacher would say. And then also just talking about a little bit philosophically about how we don't do a great job supporting mothers in our society. We don't have parental leave. We don't have, you know, a visiting nurse service that comes and sees moms in the home with their babies. Mm -hmm. So there's not a lot of support, but there's a lot of expectations placed on moms. And I think when we've.
0: Let's put that on a bumper sticker. Oh, my gosh. That (laughs) is so so true. there's not a lot of support, but yeah, there's a lot and so of expectations. Yeah, when we inevitably don't yep.
1: meet them, we think it's a personal failure instead of recognizing that the system is, is rigged.
0: Yeah,
3: right.
1: So the last part of the <laughs> right. book is really about sort of letting go of some of those bigger expectations, letting go of comparing yourself to others. There's a whole section on self-compassion and Kristen Neff's work on self-compassion. So right. really just kind of big picture like Donald Winnicott and the good enough mother and that, you know, you're
0: doing great, you know,
1: or as they would say these days, you got this. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. That's great. It sounds like you cover so many usable things. It's not fluff. It's down to earth. And oh, my gosh, I already said usable. But yeah, down to earth. It's really great. I tried to be efficient. I tried to
1: cover a lot of topics and give really practical advice. And I also have quotes from moms or women in all the sections that sort of represent the range of responses so that you might hear your voice and you know, you might recognize the way you feel in another woman's quote. And that makes you feel less alone. Right. Because I really wanted a book where you felt like you were heard and supported and that you were going to figure out whatever you needed to be strong as a mother.
0: Ooh. That's fantastic. I can definitely see why you named it Strong as a Mother. I love that. It's a sort of a play on words and it speaks to so many different things. It speaks to the pressures that we feel, but really the strength that we have. And then this other play on words (laughs) that I just love. It's a really crafty title. So I thank you so much for coming on and sharing this, sharing your personal experience, but also this fantastic resource that you've created that I just know will be so helpful oh, to so many people. You're welcome, and
1: thank you for your podcast and for everything you're doing to get the message out there that, you know, you can take care of your mental health, and it's worth it.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's always really amazing to me how many different ways moms and dads can experience difficulty through pregnancy and postpartum. For everybody, it's different, but there are some really strong commonalities that go through all of these things. And we talk about this a lot on the podcast, but I think, you know, having stories like Kate's is really important because we get to see another way that things can show up. And I think it's a great way for you, those of you who have been through it or who are helping others go through it, understand the ways in which it can be different for you. But still know that it's something that a lot of people go through and you're not alone. So if you'd like to touch base with Kate, you can reach out to her on Twitter at Kate Rope, Instagram at strong as a mother book, and Facebook strong as a mo. And of course, on our website, katerope.com, please go check out her book, see what it has to offer you. And of course, please also stay connected to us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and come and connect with us at Mom and Mind Connection Facebook group. Until next time. Thank you for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together, we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Mom and Mind. No one told
3: us the truth about parenthood. Why?